This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. So, Jerry, what is the world of law into which the the Torah, which is a collection of stories, poetry, law, and other stuff, um, but what's the world of law in which it enters? What's it like in the ancient Near East? Well, the uh, it's it's a big question because the Torah, the Jewish, the ancient Jews, the Israelites come into a world which is already old and mm. already culturally extremely well established. So the ancient Near East, which stretches from the, let's say, the Persian Gulf uh, through Egypt, uh, the Mediterranean, <laughs> um, you... And up a, into Syria and southeastern yeah, Turkey with today. The yeah, Mesopotamia the between... Yeah. Right, the Tigris and Euphrates, all the way up into to Turkey, uh, the Hittites. You have so this 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 world uh, already has writing in uh, the beginning of the third millennium BCE. That's uh, five thousand years ago. Already in Sumer. And shortly afterwards, if not exactly at the same time, in Egypt, different kinds of writing to be sure, but you mm. already have writing, you already have uh, all kinds of, his, of historical contributions by humanity have already been, been made. And uh, by the time that we get down to the uh, uh, lower part of the second millennium BCE, which is Possibly, let's say somewhere between fifteen hundred and twelve hundred, not to put too fine a point right. on it. When <laughs> BCE, when uh, let's say the Israelites uh, leave Egypt. Okay, so by this time, this is a world which has already had civilizations come and go. Uh, Sumer has gone, has come and, and gone. Uh, old Babylonia has come and gone. Uh, you have uh, Egypt has gone through several iterations. Uh, and you have uh, Syria is on the ascent. Uh, and uh, the Hittites uh, are, the, are a major empire uh, stretching out from uh, lower Turkey at the, uh, by the middle of the, of the second millennium BC. Now, all of these civilizations, except for Egypt, have left uh, law codes or law collections. We're talking about Sumer and uh, Babylon, uh, the Hittites, uh, the Assyrians. We all have these collections, or, or uh, most of them. We have actually the Hammurabi Code, a famous Hammurabi Code from Babylon is, uh, is our most complete one, which is why it's, it's referred to so often. It's 282 uh, laws. But aside from that, we have tens of thousands of legal documents and law cases that are uh, stretched out over the ancient Near East. Uh, so we have a 
very wide and long tradition of uh, ancient Elishan law. I think the earliest uh, uh, Sumerian law collections that we have are from about 2100 BC. So now, so when you talk about the Torah, and by the way, the, many people uh, talk about the Torah as if it's a law book. It's not a law book. Right. It right. has many laws. It uh, has laws in uh, in Exodus. It has Le- uh, Leviticus is almost uh, totally law. You have, uh, but you will have relatively few laws in Numbers, and Deuteronomy is a reiteration. A large part of it's a reiteration. Um, of law. Uh, but it's actually law which is embedded in a narrative. Right. And the narrative stretches from creation to the uh, gates of the promised land. There's no such thing in the ancient world. So the Torah in its formation, in it, which has laws in narrative, plus it has poetry, plus it has prophecy, plus it has geologies, all these things and, and make, ritual as well, right? Uh, and, yeah, well, ritual, uh, ritual laws, and and a description of, of 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 commandments on how to build. I mean, God uh, commands, as it were, how to build the sanctuary, and then you have this discussion of that and the fulfillment of those commands. So uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of different things going on which appear in no other ancient Near Eastern law document. Yeah, so these other, so the Code of Hammurabi, yeah, we, we think of something like, um, they're kind of stated in conditionals. If X happens, if a man does X, then Y is the punishment. Um, yes. And yeah, these are what's called casuistic that. laws. Yeah, right. Yes. As it were, yes, as it were, um, if right, if X happens, then what is the then Y is the punishment? Okay, this is a, that's the, the normal form. You have that form in many of the laws of the um, the Torah also, but you also have a different form which. Of law which does not appear anywhere else, and it's a law which is called the direct address. God is addressing the Israelites, and by the way, I should make the point here that this is one of the unique things about Torah's law. No other civilization in the ancient world ever claimed or had an example of God giving it its law. That, uh, that only occurs in the Torah. Hammurabi, for example, said, talks about three different gods who charged him with making law, making law that would be, bring justice to the country. But Hammurabi, in his code, at the epilogue, 11 times says, these are my pronouncements, these are my right. ordinances. This is this is uh, this is my fulfillment of my charge. These are the laws that I'm writing. <laughs> All right, I'm coming up with, it. even though if they were based on uh, on other common laws that appeared before. So yeah, yeah. So if I can ask you about different. that particular issue, um, 
Because you said it's casuistic, which means, you know, if some if something occurs, then here's how you are to treat it. Right. And the problem with casuistic laws, if that's all you have, um, is it means you kind of have to exhaustively list out every possibility. Um, and, and then and then lawyers will come in that w- the way we think of it is people <laughs> law experts would come in and think about, well, what what does this intend? How do we think about other possibilities that aren't stated here? But as many people uh, who work in this literature love to point out, nobody seems to pay attention to the, the codes of Hammurabi uh, or the code of Hammurabi at all. Um, it's not part of the legal debates or legal discussions. It's not cited. It's, in fact, it's sometimes contradicted by legal decisions. Yes. In, in, in fact, uh, I mentioned the tens of thousands of lower cases that we have mentioned uh, in a cuneiform script uh, throughout the ancient Near East where we have the, these, these documents. Not one cites any of the law collections I mentioned <laughs> that appear in the other civilizations, including civilizations, including Hammurabi. Not one cites Hammurabi mm. or his predecessor by a generation, the Ishnuna laws, which are very different, by the way, in many ways than Hammurabi's. These are not, there's not one single citation so that scholars have come to the conclusion that these laws were never actually referred to by judges or by courts of whatever type, but rather they were simply there as a scholastic tradition. This was something, uh, this is what kings did and it was passed on. And we have many copies uh, of fragments of uh, Hammurabi's court, about 50, but none of them apparently had any actual legal influence. Hmm. So, so that means that only a few people ha- seem to have a- had access to these laws. Um, so it's not like everybody was taught these laws in school or, you know, they went to shul and, and learned these laws as children and then growing up. It's unclear how much these laws penetrated the thinking of those cultures in which they entered. Well, actually, they existed. actually, we ag- actually know that none of these laws, none of these ancient Near Eastern laws were ever promulgated to the people. Right. They were, there was... That it's never discussed, it's never mentioned, it's never, it's, and uh, t- take Hammurabi's code again. And in Zepalag, Hammurabi states uh, that anybody who feels they have uh, some kind of a case, something injustice has been done to them, let them come to my stila, which of the, of the code, right? This is a, the monument upon which the code has been written out, which is placed next to his statue. In the temple, in the chief temple in Babylon, the Esagila, and let him have it read out loud to him to see if he has a case. Now, here's the problem. So, first of all, how does he know he's supposed to come? Because hmm. this statement was never promulgated to the public. And let's say he even hears somehow he's supposed to come. Then he's got to get permission to enter the temple and have a literate priest read out to him. <laughs> What the what the the code says? <laughs> we have no no statement anywhere in any document from the ancient Near East that people did this, that this was something that they knew about. So mm. again, this is a also a major difference between this and the Torah. The Torah at the beginning of uh, chapter twenty two of Exodus, which comes. 
I'm sorry, 21 of Exodus, which comes right. immediately after the Ten Commandments, okay, says, these are the laws you are to place before them. Right. This is a command that God commands the word to Moses to put these laws before the people that this is proactive. They, they, this is prescriptive. They have to learn this. So because mm. these, for the first time, God commands laws to a people. So the people have to know that what they are so that they don't do the wrong thing in God's eyes. Yeah, and so this, this becomes, is... Sorry. Yeah, sorry. I, um, so this is part of uh, the work of uh, one of your books, uh, Justice for All, How the Jewish Bible Revolutionized Ethics. Yes. Uh, you talk extensively in that book about uh, this several radical things going on here. One, that you have a God who talks to people in direct yes. address, and not to individuals, but also the entire people group. And then he conscribes them into this you know, we could call it a legal framework, but obviously we, we typically mean something the different. Interesting uh, thing, in our- the interesting thing about the laws of the Torah is that I, I mentioned that from a literary perspective, they're embedded in narrative, but it's more than that. The framework, as were the uh, cultural framework, is not a right. legal framework. It's a treaty framework. It's right, part right, of the right. covenant between God and Israel. Covenant is a bad English term. That has been used to describe what went on on Mount Sinai between God and Israel. A covenant can mean a lot of things in English. It can mean uh, it can mean an agreement. Uh, It it can mean uh, uh, some kind of a business uh, agreement to do a business transaction. But the word, the Hebrew word, which is covenant, translates the word brit actually means the vast majority of times that it appears in the Hebrew Bible, it means treaty. And the if you examine what is going on, the treaty that they're talking about, the God here, the God-Israel treaty, which God makes with Israel, is based upon, actually informed, a contemporary treaties, contemporary treaties of the period, the Hittite suzerain vassal right. treaties made between the great emperor and a lesser king. One of the unusual aspects here is that, A, just like we don't have anywhere else where a god gives a people a law, we don't have anywhere else where God makes a treaty with a people <laughs> or makes a right. treaty. Is, you know, so, so here, all of a sudden, you have and the, this, this, this treaty, and in this treaty, you, as every treaty depends, ultimately the key factor of the treaty is stipulations. What do, in a, in a treaty between equals, the question is, what does each side have to do? But between a great emperor and a lesser king, the great emperor makes the treaty with the lesser king and, and says, these are the stipulations you have to follow. Those stipulations in the Torah are the laws of the people. And that's the framework. And it's laws, 
for the people, which I think is the emphasis again, that it's actually the entire people of Israel are responsible as individuals to contribute to keeping. And, I, and I, exactly. again, I, I'm, I'm using the word keeping, but, but in American thinking, we think of laws as you keep or you break them. But the metaphor is really you keep as in you tend and you guard it, um, you foster it in some way, um, rather than merely just breaking or keeping. Yes, and, um, and, 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 the, and you're right, you're right, because this is a very key thing. Whereas treaties were made with between kings, usually, right? This is a treaty made by the supreme king, God, hmm. with every individual. So every individual in Israel is raised to the level, as it were, of a lesser king. And, and yeah. therefore, responsibility is given to every individual as re and is required from every individual. That's... Uh, it's another issue which uh, I sometimes is, uh, mentioned that that the Bible is not so much concerned with human rights. In other words, hmm. what right do I have right. to something else? Right. As opposed, I mean, to, correct, correct. As, it, <laughs> as opposed <laughs> to human responsibilities. Right. What what do I have to give? To, how do I have to take care of my neighbor? The stranger, okay, or, or or whoever, member of my family, this this is um, what really the, the the Torah is focusing on. And I think the strongest, you know, in, in American the American enterprise and American political thinking, that's what rights uh, had the originally had the veneer of responsibilities as well. We used to talk about rights and responsibilities as as one package. Um, but it's kind of dropped down to the least common denominator now of entitlement to certain rights. And um, okay, so we have a great landscape in front of us of uh, ancient Near Eastern law, kind of what it was doing and how it worked, and the radical difference of of the Torah, the legal codes within the Torah uh, that are embedded in events and narratives, um, and the people's consent. Right, so the people say we will do this right we will keep this yes. law so it's not it's not forced yes. upon them you have the statement um, uh, right in exodus you have it uh, elsewhere but it's uh yes and the uh, the thing about this also is is that i mentioned earlier that this direct address where god speaks to the people and says this is what you must do hmm. not only that but it's it also enables the existence of something else which doesn't appear in ancient Near Eastern law, and that is motivations. Mm. There's um, uh, God says, you you must, uh, for example, if you, if you take somebody's clothing and pledge, okay, for, uh, let's say, for something the person borrows and it's going to return later on that day, you must return it to them by, by nightfall because what is the person going to sleep in? What is that? I mean, right, and, right. And, and if he yells out to me, I will pay attention. I will listen. Right. Yeah. So you have this, you have this caring of God for the people, which you know, for the less fortunate, which is all over the place. Yeah. And I, th I think that, that it really is difficult if you're not reading outside of the Hebrew Bible uh, and the ancient Near East, it really is difficult to see how different this is. Um, we just think, that, like, oh, yeah, this is the way law works. Of course we care about the less fortunate. Of course we care about the more vulnerable. Um, well, that 
does happen in in other cultures outside of uh, the Israelites, but it's not a given that that's going to happen. Um, well, actually, it's not required in, by the God. In, right in ancient, well, and in ancient Egyptian law, you do not have in any law collection or in any uh, document of a court case one law on behalf of the poor and needy, not one. Mm. Wow. Right? And the Torah is full of them. You yeah. Even concerning the stranger, there's only one law which appears in Ashnuna, I say a generation before Amirabi, about uh, if a stranger wants to sell his grain for beer, okay, to make beer or something like this, then he has to go to the tapster who was a woman who's in charge of uh, executing uh, this agreement, to, and she will sell it at market price. That is the only law concerning wow. the stranger in the ancient Near East and outside of the Torah. And the uh, therefore, the stranger was, as it were, a totally a person who, under all other circumstances, was absolutely a an out an outlaw. He was outside the law, hmm. <laughs> and except in the Torah, where all of a sudden. You have to take care. You have to make sure he's got food and shelter, etc., and clothing. It's, uh, I think it's, it's fair it's, to say that when I read through the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, with students, Christian students who maybe haven't read it all together or they haven't read it closely, this is the most striking aspect to them: is how often the care for the vulnerable comes up again and again and again, and that the foreigner would be considered part of that vulnerability, vulnerable class, and the resident alien. Um, would be a specific instance of a vulnerable person. So uh, it is striking. Okay. Now I want to turn to Michael Lefebvre's uh, article, uh-huh. uh, which yeah. caught a lot of heat on several fronts <laughs> for, for some of the, uh, the language he used. And uh, we already did an episode. So if you haven't heard the, um, there's some people concerned that it sounded supersessionist, like it was basically saying Jesus is here, so we don't need the Jews anymore. Um and uh, so I did a, a podcast episode with uh, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam, and uh, but Dr. Jerry Unterman had different concerns uh, about the text, and more along this technical nature. And, and it's a it's a subtle shift, but I think uh, we can we can we, in in biblical studies, it's very easy to make statements uh, that don't catch what the the detail that you're trying to catch onto here when it comes to the Torah in its ancient Near Eastern context. Uh, of legal codes, and so what? What stood out to you as problematic in, in Michael Lefebvre's article? Well, yes, he talks about the idea of that uh, the law, Torah's law, is like ancient Near Eastern law, and I, I want to just quote uh, a couple of his his comments here. He says, "Quote: Law collections in Israel and other ancient lands were compiled to inspire the people's hope." and to instruct their obedience to God's ways, but not for civic regulation. Now, there's two things wrong there, if you will forgive me. One is that... We're we're scholars. We can just say people are wrong. (laughs) Okay. Is that... Well, I don't want to say it, but this statement is is wrong. Right, right, right. Is Is that the law collections in Israel were indeed compiled to inspire the people's hoping to instruct their obedience in God's ways, but not in other ancient lands. Right. And laws and collections of Israel were there for civic regulation. The 
the as well as for criminal regulation as and for even ritual regulation. So, so that and that's, that's part of what's unique about the, the legal code. So is that it's mixing ritual regulation with criminal and civil. Exactly, and you don't have that anywhere else in the ancient years. In the ancient years, all the the civil there's civil courts which take care of and and the ancient recent collections I mentioned are all concerned with civil and criminal law. None of them is concerned with ritual. That's in the hands of the priests. And by the way, none of them is concerned with a, a sense of a moral law. That's right. as where uh, uh, the sages, uh, the wisdom literature of the ancient theory sometimes talks about that. But mm. in, in Israel, the uh, morality is raised uh, to the level of law, which is a... Uh, it became something much more important. Another one of his statements is that, quote, the function of law collections in lands like Israel is the concept sketch, offering key glimpses to encourage and teach faithfulness. Now, again, that's not collect by about correct about ancient law collections since they never reached the public. But in Israel, certainly, it's it's there to encourage and teach faithfulness, if by faithfulness one means obedience to the Torah's law, then that's certainly one of the chief messages of the Torah. But that that would also mean that fidelity to God is measured by that obedience. Uh, and and that would be, yeah. and, and what you're saying is, yes, but that's what makes it different, actually, than all the law codes that surround it. Yes, exactly. The, uh, he also claims that uh, the king is a source of justice. But in the Torah and throughout the Hebrew Bible, God is that source. And therefore, yes. the king is obligated to be just in obedience to the laws demanded by God. And there's uh, numerous verses in the book of Kings which state that right out. Uh, yeah. So I could imagine Dr. Lefebvre just coming back and saying like, oh yeah, I just, I needed to be more specific on this front. But I think there's a, a, a like, so he he may have just cur- wanted to correct that and say, okay, well, actually I was narrowing it or I hadn't thought about that point. Um, but it when we were talking about this, it raises more general point to me is that I feel like I'm constantly trying to help students and parishioners and people understand that the law in the Hebrew Bible doesn't work the same way we think of tort law and, and American and British law today and, and Republic, you know, legislative laws and statutes today. And so I, I, maybe I err by the pendulum swinging way too far. And I'm like, no, no, no law has this common, common sense to it. It's precedence. It's, it's shaping and crafting the way people think. It's not necessarily giving uh, penalized if, if X, then Y. It, it has those aspects to it, but it's doing something more. And I wonder, I, now I hear you saying like, well, we need to be a lot more careful with what we think ancient Near Eastern law is doing in general. And maybe the comments that I typically make, I would want to relegate to what's unique about the Hebrew Bible. So Excuse I guess me? the question... I didn't hear the last thing you said. What's unique about the Hebrew Bible yeah. itself. Um, so I guess... The big question here about law in the ancient Near East, while we have you on the phone, yeah. um, is to ask this question, well, what what exactly is it 
like what what's the difference between maybe Hammurabi and Missouri statutes on speeding, if I could put it bluntly? Yes, well, it's this is a it's a good point because as in well, as in most societies today, it's the question really is in terms of law of the society what you have to do according to the law to be a good citizen. To be a good citizen, generally speaking, in, in terms of legal terms, means you don't break the law. You don't do something which is against the law, which is why you, it's good to know <laughs> what, what it is you're not supposed to do. And in terms of the punishment, there are different permeations and uh, different nuances. In Hammurabi, uh, your punishment can come upon you and your family members, mm. or you can have vicarious punishment. If you kill somebody's daughter, your daughter will be executed. Mm. Uh, if uh, you rape somebody's daughter, your wife will be raped. Okay, mm. in that's a punishment. You know, it, in the Hebrew Bible, there is something totally different that's going on. The purpose of the law there is to create a just society. And the idea that God gives it means that law has now an importance it doesn't have elsewhere because God is the one who ultimately rewards and punishes if something is done and a court doesn't see or there's no evidence, but God knows, okay, then, then God either, God will punish the entire society, if a many, great many people are flouting the, the laws. At mm. the same token, God will also reward the society. And therefore you have in uh, chapters like Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, 28 blessings yeah. and curses, which will blessings if the people will do well, they will get the rain in the season, they will, their crops will be, they will not have to worry about enemies, etc., etc., And on the other hand, the punishments, if uh, if the, the curses, if the people uh, do not uh, do what they're supposed to do, then they will be punished in all these ways, agricultural and security and et, et cetera, et cetera. The, the interesting thing though, again, this is part of a treaty. So what you have though, is something that you don't have anywhere else. The people, may break the treaty, but God does not break the treaty. Mm. And that's stated specifically in Leviticus 26, for example. <laughs> and therefore, that the treaty is permanent. And if punishment occurs as, um, for example, the Babylonian destruction and exile of Judea in 586, Nonetheless, the punishment has a sense, in a sense, as we expect it to do with modern society, should wipe out the crime. And there was this compensation for the crime. Mm. And then the relationship can be refilled or refulfilled. So what happens is that then God brings the people back under the Persians, you know, less than 70 years later. <laughs> the, uh, and so, and the relationship continues. So this is, uh, it, therefore, as I say, law has a whole different aspect. It has, it's the desire is to make 
people into better people. And so when you're supposed to take care of the, the needy and, and I think you, the idea is you're creating actually a better society. And by creating a better society, you're getting, it's becoming its own reward for you. Yeah. Because in tough times, people will help each other if that's the norm in the society. Right. I think that's uh, that's a wonderful way to say it, and I I think the it's really hard, especially being raised in, uh, in America, where law is negative, it's reactive, it's penalty driven, uh, it's something you don't want to you know don't want to get caught up in the law, right? Uh, and then of course lawyers complicate that. <laughs> um, and you're saying no, the law is actually procreative. It's meant to it's the kind of thing that's supposed to shape the way we're supposed to become a people. Um, and it pays its own dividends. It's you know I I always hate using the term human flourishing because it's overused, but it's meant to create flourishing or conditions in which people can flourish. yes, uh, all kinds of people, and that's just such a radically you know if we want to talk about how different the Hebrew Bible is in its own day, we could also talk about how different it is in its legal instruction today in our 100%. in our legal thinking yes. Yeah. Dr. Jerry Unterman, thank you so much for your uh, shrewd understanding of all of these complex matters and your wisdom in guiding us through them. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me. Uh, I appreciate it very much, Drew, and uh, it's an honor and a pleasure. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.